May the fourth be with you. Live Friends, long wel- and prosper. Oh, sorry. What? Don't th- <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. We'll keep going. We're a little bit chaotic today. It's been a long week, a long day, but we're coming to you on May the 4th. Star Wars Day It is a great day to be a Star Wars fan. And today we're continuing our coverage here on the Star Wars Universe podcast of the show Star Wars Rebels. We're talking about Season 3, Episodes 6, 7, and 8. We have droids back into the battle. We have Imperial Super Commandos and questions of loyalty. And we have the Iron Squadron. All that more after commercial break. We have no control over Welcome back. I'm Matthew, your host, they, them pronouns. Uh, I'm really glad to be here and talking about this with you all. It's, it's, the day has been just like so full of everywhere I go on Twitter, on TikTok, I'm seeing Star Wars stuff. I didn't get a chance to make any TikToks, so I'm just really glad I have some Star Wars content getting recorded with you all. So Ricky and Sarah, say hello. And uh, how, how was your May the 4th? Hello. Oh, because it sounds like May the 4th be with you. Okay. I'm finally getting it. My May the 4th was good and busy. We had our, our ceramic sale today. So I have a wicked sunburn, which is, is delightful. But I got to see a whole bunch of fun Star Wars t-shirts. And when I went to get my coffee this mor- morning, they had a little Grogu sticker that say, good day, I hope you have. So that made me happy. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. I appreciate that. Um, actually, mm-hmm. Grogu doesn't even talk. <laughs> Grogu might talk <laughs> later. You don't know. I mean, Grogu communicates, and we don't know what Ahsoka heard in her head. So it's entirely possible, like, just his vocal cords are not formed, but he already has those weird linguistic patterns. Yeah. Why not? We don't know. Why does Yoda have them? Yeah. I mean, the idea that linguistic patterns... I, I've actually seen, uh, like, someone do an in-depth analysis of this, someone who was, like, a linguistic anthropologist, and they talked about how, like, th- there is no evidence, at least as far as I understand it, that, like linguistic patterns are genetic so like mm. for a baby yoda to not grow up around anyone else who spoke that way and to wind up speaking that way would, would not make much sense but who knows some random person on the internet told me they had a degree and told me that so yeah. i'm sure that it has you know you can't lie on the internet right yeah right yeah. all right so let's jump into our first episode we have three episodes today the first one is the last battle apologies folks these Episode summaries from Wikipedia are pretty long. I'm going to try and edit them down for le- for next time. This episode, I really enjoyed The Last Battle on a Whoa. salvage mission. Whoa, you enjoyed this? <laughs> oh, I thought it was really good. Okay. They got to hear all their favorite Roger Roger oh, moments. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. On a salvage mission to an old Clone Wars battlefield led by Captain Rex, the ghost crew is captured by a unit of old battle droids. Yes, you heard that. Battle droids from the Clone Wars. <laughs> Their commander, a super tactical droid named General Kalani, managed to avoid the army-wide shutdown command and wants to pit his forces against Rex and the Jedi in order to conclude whether the Separatists of the Republic forces are superior once and for all. As Rex, Ezra, and Kanan battle the droids, Chopper, Chopper manages to sneak away and send a distress signal to Hera and Sabine. Ezra then discovers Chopper immediately afterwards, with Chopper also having discovered a trio of intact and still spaceworthy Neomodian shuttles. However, the Empire also receives the distress call and dispatches an assault force. Rex and the Jedi manage to reach Kalani, and Ezra points out to him that neither the Republic nor the Separatists won the Clone Wars, but were in fact both defeated by the Empire. Ezra also notes that since the Separatists were originally fighting to resist tyranny, the battle droids should naturally oppose the Empire. 
Kalani sees the logic in Ezra's words, with the ghost crew and the droids working together to escape the Imperial Assault Force in, in two of the trio of vintage Neomodian shuttles that Chopper found. There's just so many extra details in the summary that are not needed. It's good. We're not done yet. <laughs> yep. After they've escaped, calculating that the Rebellion has less than 1% chance of succeeding against the Empire, Kalani amicably parts ways with the Rebels. Rex congratulates Ezra for doing what no Senator, Clone, or Jedi ever could— convincing clones and battle droids to set aside their differences. All they needed was a giant alien from space to come and destroy the Earth and unite everybody. That's how it works. That's generally how it works. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, Riki, you are not a fan of this episode, I take it? No. What? Why are you putting this on me? You're the one who hates <laughs> battle droids. Oh, okay, okay. I do generally hate battle droids, and I... I Here's the thing. I hated the way battle droids were treated so often in that they were meant to be just a running joke. And I never found the joke funny and I found the joke annoying. Plus, they were making a joke out of the death of sentient life. Like the droids are clearly sentient to some extent or another. And so it just to me, there was never any drama. There was never any actual tension with the droids. It just felt like meaningless cannon fodder. This, to me, felt like a fundamentally different episode. A, they were animated better. I think Roger Roger was only spoken once or twice, and it, it kind of had some effect when it was. But mostly, I, I, I love a story about people who are having trouble getting past their anger and resentment. And their, their, the, you know, when I would do counseling work, I'd often kind of say to people, like, what's important to you? Is it important to you to figure this out and to settle this? Or is it important to you to win? And... I don't know. I just, I just ever like, I haven't been in the military and I'm sure that kind of escalates everything a hundred times, but I just found so much of this episode so relatable and so kind of touching that I, I just really enjoyed it. Battle droids and all. Yeah. I mean, I think they were still pretty pratfally in this episode, which is mm -hmm. the thing that really annoyed me as well about them in Clone Wars. But yeah, I agree. They were, they were less cannon fodder pratfalling mm -hmm. and more just like, kind of goofy which is still not like again they're not my yeah. favorite but they were a little more ignorable or like not as obviously terrible not in your face terrible i guess their I terribleness in battle mm. was a plot device mm -hmm. in mm. this episode yes. because at one point they have to roll these canisters of explosive at the ad at walker's feet and then hit them with blasters to explode them and Kalani says, well, my droids are not accurate enough to hit those, mm -hmm. which is a kind of a ridiculous statement for <laughs> yeah. droids, right? And then it turns out they were better off having the droids shoot at Kanan and Ezra, and those two deflect the blaster bolts with their lightsabers, and that was more accurate than the battle droids aiming. And, and they, they tried to make a point of like, oh, they're old and whatnot, but still, <laughs> it, it felt kind of kind of ridiculous. But it was an it, ultimate it, trust exercise. It really, yeah, talk about a trust fall. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess, well, A, here's the thing. A, I watched those episodes because we're recording a lot later than we normally do, probably five days ago. And it's entirely mm -hmm. possible. So I've had five days to kind of sit and marinate on like all the conversations between Rex and Kalani and, and everything else. And it's possible if I just watched it, I'd be like, oh, my God, battle droids. <laughs> but I've been able to kind of put it away because <laughs> you're right. I don't like the Pratt falliness, but I... I like that moment you're talking about, Riki, because to me, it was kind of a nice way. It was kind of like sort of like how Rogue One took the idea from Star Wars, the original movie, when you're sort of like, wait, 
why in the world is the Death Star this easy to blow up? And said, oh, it's because someone did this intentionally. It, and acknowledging that the, the droids are ridiculously bad at shooting. And, and like there's some books that have also gone into this and talked about how the Neomodians being, you know, really trying to focus on the, on the bottom line and that they always actually figured that the, the, the importance of the battle droids was intimidation and that no one would actually fight them. So that they're incredibly cheaply made. And so they have no armor whatsoever and they have no oh targeting gosh. software and that they're really bad at all that. Mm. Are you serious? That's wow. As if as if the Neomodians were not racist caricatures enough. <laughs> Just feeding and into that whole eighties, nineties mm. cheap Japanese radio stereotype. Yeah. I mean that part is certainly fair. That's I'm I'm just saying where the, the justification for it comes. But yeah, no, that that mm-hmm. Neo racism, yeah, we've talked about quite a bunch and I think that's still fully on display there. But yeah, so I just I just, I just like the episode quite a bit, cause especially just because of the dynamics between and, and how Ezra is able to kind of help both of them see, like, look, what you're cause it's funny, we never really thought about this, but like the Clone Wars it, it doesn't end with either side winning, really. I mean the Republic has declared the winner, but the whole thing is just so 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 oddly done at the end. Yeah, well, like, technically the Republic wins, right? But then the Republic becomes the Empire. And the people who were originally fighting for the Republic are all murdered. Well, mostly all murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's like... I guess you could count that as a win. Like, the main guy running the show won. Mm-hmm. But wasn't he also playing... Like, the like Palpatine was kind of playing both sides in this, the, the whole Clone Wars. But I, I I agree with what you're saying about having more time to think about it and more time to forget about the annoyingness of the battle droids. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of like what what I was saying too. Like they're less obviously terrible. They're they're more easily they're they're an easily forgettable kind of annoying. Um, and I do like the like it's a super whacking contrived. But I like that they acknowledge the whole battle droids have terrible aim and made it into a fun plot point. I also like that they acknowledged how annoying the Roger Roger is. And like Ezra, like who's Roger? Yeah, yeah. It was, that was such a good line. It was fantastic, and this wonderful like sort of meta acknowledgement of like, okay, we've made them say Roger Roger, perhaps a bit too much. This felt to me like it was written by people who had a kind of like they watched the Clone Wars as kids, and so they sort of like they loved it and hated the, the droids all at the same time. Mm-hmm. This felt like kind of a send up of it in that way. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So what did you all think, though, of kind of deeper idea that went into with with Rex and this and this general and and, and everything else about like the, the desire to refight and win the Clone Wars? Mm. Well, I think we talked about not not too long ago about Rex still harboring some big issues with mm-hmm. droids of all shapes and sizes in his willingness to go and beat up any quote unquote clanker he comes across. And I think this is like a nice a nice moment for Rex to kind mm-hmm. of work with a non-astromech droid and not end up killing him or like ripping them apart but yeah it this this weird like play acting out the end of the clone war with a, a few battle droids and like two jedis and a clone seems super strange and like they acknowledge it in in the episode right and like they're kind of like well what else are we gonna do just like sit here and do nothing why not might as well go along with this strange charade but yeah, it felt it felt like a weird little role play. I don't know. Yeah. And the fact that Zeb was also on this mission and his role <laughs> in the combat, in the play combat, was to be a hostage, mm-hmm. I think is also a key point in this. Right. In that he represents the galaxy, mm. which was held hostage by this crisis, this 
manufactured crisis by mm-hmm. Palpatine. Exactly. I'm rewatching the Clone Wars with my my partner Mary, and actually, just a few hours ago, we watched the episodes where Padme is trying to like get the the Republic to stop taking out more and more loans from the banking clan in order to buy more and more soldiers. Yeah, I mean, I I know not everyone loved it, but I it just like, <laughs> but a lot of what's about is about how the Clone Wars is is becoming just. It, it's the same kind of idea of what's happening here is that the two armies are just trapped in this cycle by people who are either profiting off of it, like the bankers or the people who are, you know, benefiting it from like the Sith specifically. Mm-hmm. Two just little things in particular that I wanted to point out that I, I really loved the, the whole idea of the Republic becoming the empire, but especially when once Ezra makes that case, says who won the war and, and the Kalani, the general says, I accept your logic. We are on the same side. And it's just it's just a wonderful like he does. It, it's a very Vulcan kind of like I, I mm. just process everything. And and then the other line was I think it's Kanan who says to Rex, but maybe to Ezra, you know, none of you were meant to win. Kind of so they were talking about like this, you know, the kind of the post post game analysis. And Rex says, and we needed to hear it, which I, I just really appreciated that that Ezra here is as stupid as, as the role play was. They kind of needed to go through it and needed to get to that understanding of we were all played. Yeah, neither one of you could ever win this war. So what I really love about this episode is the use of the character Kalani, who was mm. a battle droid, a tactical battle droid from the Onderon arc of episodes in the Clone Wars, where we got to meet a young Saw Gerrera. So Kalani was actually in charge of the occupation of Onderon. And at the end of that episode, when the Separatists withdraw from the planet, uh, Dooku tells Kalani to go to Agamor, which is the planet that he's on right now. So there's this connection all the way back to Clone Wars. And just what at the time was probably just a throwaway line of go to this planet. They reconnect it with the same character here. And it's it's really lovely. It really shows just how much Filoni, but especially everyone involved, loved the Clone Wars so much. I mean, Filoni was one of the writers of Clone Wars, I believe. But yeah, the fact they would do is that they could have just made this any random battle droid on any random planet. But someone went back and searched and found that one line from one episode. I just love that. Yeah. Well, and even like keeping with the, that continuity, like the battle droids with the shields that nothing can penetrate except Rex's helmet, question mark. That's what uh, Saw and Ahsoka and Anakin, they were learning to like slowly lob a bomb inside of the shield because it has to be going like a certain speed. And I was wondering if they would like use that in this episode, like if Rex would remember or know it somehow. And like, it never came up, which is totally fine. But I like that those droids were still there. It's like a nice touch. Yeah. I definitely like that. Yeah. This is almost like fan fiction, right? Mm -hmm. When you were saying someone went back, I'm sure it was like someone was watching that episode and said, Oh, what happened to Kalani after he went to Agamar? <laughs> Let me write this fan fiction about it, and then yeah. it becomes an episode of Rebels. Yeah, you're kind of right. I mean, that's exact. So, I feel like so much of what we've been getting has been things like that, where it's like someone's like, "Okay, wait a minute how how did they get the 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 plans that went into R two D two? Let's write a movie about it. You know, let's let's write a video game about how did people actually become Inquisitors if they were young Jedi, uh, like Fallen Order and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think the fan fiction is a great description. Yeah, and you can like maybe that's why I like Rebels so much is because like. It kind of has that vibe overall as a show. Like, it's really, really thoughtfully done. And yeah, you can just, I don't know. 
You can feel the love, which sounds super corny, but it feels very careful. And like a lot of attention is paid to those, those mm-hmm. yeah. kind of details. If you're, if you're a fan of the Clone Wars or just Star Wars in general, you will watch these episodes and have moments where you will do the Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the screen mm-hmm. from um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. Like, oh, I recognize that character. Or they said this name from this mm-hmm. episode, a very obscure name. So it's very fun to to be one of those people that has watched everything and knows so Definitely. much. And, and I'm sure there's stuff that we are ourselves are missing because Star Wars is so vast. Mm-hmm. And and we'll talk about a few more. We'll talk about a few more connections in these upcoming episodes too, not only to other shows but to to novels mm-hmm. and to comic books. Yeah, and definitely if there's stuff we're missing, please point it out. Let us know. And and part of our hope is that even if you are not, I hope you're watching the show because it's so good. But even if you're not, you know, part of our hope is that we're at least going to help you make some of those connections. And so there may be some things that we talk about, and then if they do get referenced in when they got referenced in Bad Batch or in the Kenobi show, you'll be able to go, oh. I heard them talking about that, etc. So I just want to know someone's listening to us out there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Shall we go into our next episode, Imperial Super Commandos? Oh, yeah. Sabine continues to try to convince Fen Rao to join the rebellion, but Fen remains staunchly loyal to Mandalore. When contact with the protectors is lost, Sabine, Ezra, and Chopper are sent with Fen to investigate where they find the Protector's base completely destroyed. After they destroy an Imperial probe droid, a squad of Imperial Mandalorians led by Gar Saxon arrive to investigate. Ezra and Chopper are captured while Sabine and Fen manage to escape. While spying on Gar, Fen realizes that the Empire intended to destroy him and the Protectors all along, and he decides to join forces with Sabine. Sabine rescues Ezra and Chopper, but Fen seemingly betrays them when he takes their shuttle and escapes without them. Gar explains how Sabine's defection to the Rebellion caused disgrace to her family, who have now pledged their allegiance to the Empire. Sabine, Ezra, and Chopper try to flee from Gar and his men, and are assisted by Fen, who helps them escape, but not before Sabine defeats Gar in hand-to-hand combat. Fen, impressed by Sabine's loyalty to the Rebellion and her friends, decides to officially join the Rebellion. It's funny because The the Mandalorian is the show that I think is really kind of the Western in space. Mm. But in this episode, at least, I I think it it probably is a trope in other, uh, you know, art forms, other genres of movies and TV shows. But I think of it as a very Western trope of like the 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 hero has been dealing with this person who's kind of a ne'er do well, but kind of a scoundrel, but sort of has a good heart, and says, you know, we need your help, and the person's like, no, he rides out of town, and then when the battle looks all but lost, you, you, he that person realizes he needs to go back. And he goes back to save our heroes. And it's uh, the movie Rounders talks about it going all the way back to the outlaw Josie Wales. It's very much what Han Solo does. I just love that trope. And I, I love that we, like with Han Solo, we never see it. We just see him come back here. We get to see Fen in the ship and see him like with his hand on the hyperspace lever and deciding to go back. And I just, I just thought, it's not my favorite episode, but I just thought it was a lot of fun and kind of a nice way of seeing one more group joining the rebellion. 
Yeah, and also, like, speaking about those homages, like, New Hope is often described as a Western, and so, like, playing with those tropes in this episode, I think, is really mm-hmm. interesting. I also like that we're getting to see more of Sabine and, and building on her relationship with, with the Mandalorians and her family. Because, mm-hmm. like, last time we saw Fen Rao is when, yeah, they were trying to negotiate a hyperspace route, and there was, like, a big reveal about Sabine being part of a rival clan and and or mm-hmm. house, and who knows what house means versus clan. Very confusing. But yeah, it's it's cool to see more of Sabine's past. Mm. And this whole, like, that her family's pledged their allegiance to the Empire seems pretty rough. Well, especially because all this stuff we're getting about the hist- about what's happening on Mandalore and these different mm. clans and stuff like that. You know, clearly the people writing Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett, like, they, they got all this information. Because they were, you know... Mm-hmm. The, the the guy who Mando has to fight is from Clan Vizsla, the same clan that 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 Fen is uh, uh, that Gar is from. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, not, no, it is one Fen is from. Yeah, so it's, I just love all that detail. Is going no, to Sabine is from Clan Vizsla, so House thought... Ren is a part of Clan Vizsla. Okay, that that's that's the point of it. Cool, thank you. Yeah, and then we can like there. I think there's some spoilery things that we can say about that later, mm-hmm. but sure. Definitely. Yeah, so you you both liked this episode? It was fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like that we get to see more of Sabine, because I love Sabine, and we haven't seen a lot of her this season, or even much last season. It was really focused on Kanan and Ezra. So getting to see more of her is, is always nice and good. But yeah, overall, I don't know. It didn't, I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Yeah. I think the episode itself is average, but what it is setting up mm. is great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the character of Gar Saxon, who we are introduced to here, is fantastic. So mm-hmm. he is a character who originally appeared in comic books, in the Maul Son of Dathomir comic books, where he is sent to rescue Maul from a prison. Mm. Uh, after he is after Maul is captured by Sidious during the Clone Wars, and then that's why Maul, when he returns, you know he takes over Mandalore for a short period of time, and then we see that Gar Saxon is actually his right hand Mandalorian, <laughs> uh, and that's chronologically in Star Wars that happens obviously before all this. Right. The episodes of the Clone Wars are, are part of the Siege of Mandalore arc in Season 7. So those were written after Rebels. So this is the first time we see Gar Saxon in the cartoons, but then they kind of backfill his story in Clone Wars Season right. 7. Yeah, I think the outline of, of Season 7 had been written some time ago. But yeah, the details were then filled in later. So who knows which direction it went. But either way, it's kind of an awesome thing. Wait, is the whole Maul taking over Mandalore thing part of season seven of Clone Wars? Yes. Oh, neat. Because like, yeah. he'd referenced that earlier I, in I Rebels. Think he, I think he takes it over in like season five, but then he's kicked out by, by Ahsoka mm. in season seven. Okay. Okay. But yeah. But yeah, either way, I, I think I can have a similar feel. I think I like the episode a little more than the two of you did, but I definitely feel like there are two reasons why I like shows like this, like Rebels. I like the, in, there are individual episodes that I just find really fun and engaging or emotionally powerful, but I also like what it contributes to the overall story. And I feel like this episode is much more in that second where it's like, oh, cool. Mm-hmm. I love learning more about the Mandalorians. I love getting to explore this idea of the planets that felt like, 
you know, you know, the idea that like Sabine joining the rebels gets the rest of this planet in trouble and like, you know, or at least her clan in trouble and that that causes resentment. I love that, especially because I, I think that it's often easy to think you join the empire if you're evil and fascist and bad. You join the rebellion if you're wonderful and loyal and good. And I feel like we see here with Gar Saxon and with Fen Rao, two people who are both like not, you know, they're making decisions. I think Fen Rao is a much more evil character, to be sure. But it's also both like their particular situations lead them to think that one is better than the other. And I, and I just really love that. To me, it gives me a much better picture of why people joined the rebellion, that some of them were just like, the Empire's wrong, but some of them were probably like, it wasn't until they became personally threatened or they sort of saw something themselves that they decided to join up. Yeah, well, like, Fen had made a deal with the Empire previously, right? And was, was like, letting them use the planet as kind of a, a, a waypoint for quite a long time. And then, yeah, pre- they ended up giving it to the rebels. And he was like, I'm, this is as involved as I'm getting. Like, I'm just, yeah. I'm just making these deals to keep my planet safe. I have no allegiance to you or the Empire whatsoever. I'm just doing what's best for me and my people. Uh, so I'm sorry. I'm a little confused. You said Fen is more evil. Did you mean Gar Saxon? Yeah, so I'm so bad with names. I apologize. Yeah, Gar Saxon is like, Gar Saxon, I think, is naturally leaning towards the Empire a lot more than Fen. Fen worked with the Empire, but I think he was always kind of uncomfortable with them. But I also do think... Given the reality that Fen is living in, I think that he's not just signing up with the Empire because like, mwahaha, I'm going to have power and be part of the, the fascist, you know, takeover. I think he he has reason to think, given what he has seen has happened, that signing on with the Empire is the best thing for Mandalore. Mm-hmm. And like, to me, that doesn't justify that decision, but it explains it. And it, it, it helps me understand that it's not just, you know... I don't think Fen's a mustache twirler. I think he genuinely thinks this is what's best for his planet. And like, I don't know, by similar logic, I don't think he's joining with the rebels because he thinks that they're like good and pure and noble. I mean, yeah. he's got this thing with Sabine where like, he appreciates Sabine's loyalty mm-hmm. um, and her Mandalorian values, I guess. And so joins on. But I think it's also partly just because like, the Empire personally screwed him over. Yeah. Right? Like, that's why he's joining the Rebels, not not because he's good, necessarily, right? Right. Does that make sense? Right. So, initially, Fen joining with the Empire, I feel like that was about protecting his people, mm-hmm. the, the protectors. <laughs> yeah, protecting the protectors. Protecting the protectors of uh, Concord Dawn, because they could have easily been wiped out by the Empire. So, he made kind of like a Lando Calrissian... Mm-hmm. style deal of we'll help you monitor these space lanes if you leave us alone and then that mm-hmm. deal kept getting worse by the minute and when it comes to gar saxon i mean as we will find out or have seen from the clone wars he is just a sycophant mm. so i think the fact that right. gar saxon has been declared the viceroy of mandalore on behalf of the empire is a signal to fen that things have gone south that yeah. this this man was put in charge and He's not going to stand for that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's definitely someone who he's kind of like lawful neutral, you know, in some ways that he's not. It's not that he's interested in like, is the empire right or wrong? It's that, as you said, Sarah, and I think you're both saying the empire betrayed him personally, but also they're kind of just displaying that they have no honor. Mm-hmm. Both in that they betrayed him and in that they're elevating Saxon to this role. And so it's, yeah, it's not even as much like, I think you rebels are good. It's that I think the Empire 
is not worthy of it's not even the empire is bad it's the empire is not worthy of rule and i don't want to be ruled by them so i'm going to join you in fighting them yeah totally some of some of my favorite stories this has mostly been in the novels but are about sort of the trouble holding the rebel alliance together and and then also like the trouble holding them all together after the empire is defeated uh, at the end of return of the jedi or then the battle of jakku and i and part of what i was good into is yeah not everybody had the same vision of what would happen after the empire and i i i you know i think this is how rebellions happen and civil wars happen and people win is because when they often have a bunch of people who all want to defeat the same enemy but for very different reasons mm-hmm. not that we're seeing anything like that in any sort of real life situation no idea what you're talking about no idea yeah, what you're talking yeah, about yeah, yeah. there's a great quote that i love i can't remember who said it in the moment but i'll try to put it in the show notes but the quote is a whole bunch of people going in the in the same direction for different reasons is a movement a whole bunch of people going in the same direction for the same reasons is a cult. Mm. <laughs> so kind of a fun little thing there. Uh, let's talk about our last episode, which is trying to tell us that one ship can be a squadron. And I don't believe that. That's not my definition of squadron. But those of you who have been in either Navy or Air Force um, or even, I guess, any kind of military, write in and let us know. Um, but yeah, Sarah, will you tell us about the Iron Squadron, episode I mean, eight? A sassy teen might think that one ship is a is a squadron. That's true. You might even think that a freighter is a Star Destroyer. <laughs> you know, those <laughs> sassy teens. All right. The ghost crew arrives at a planet to help evacuate anti-imperial dissidents. They are assisted by another armed freighter that identifies itself as Iron Squadron. Commander Sato explains that Iron Squadron used to be led by his brother, but he was killed in combat, leaving the squadron under the leadership of his headstrong nephew, Mart. While the rest of the crew evacuates the dissidents, Ezra and Sabine board Iron Squadron's ship and meet Mart and his crew. However, they are young and inexperienced, and their hyperspace drive is inoperable. When Thrawn learns of Iron Squadron, he sends a larger force. Ezra, Sabine, and Mart's crew flee while Mart stays behind and tries to fight the Imperials, but his fighter is disabled. The Ghost crew and Commander Sato return to rescue Mart and barely manage to escape Thrawn's ambush. Now safe, Martin and his friends decide to join the rebels. What do we think? Well, I'm going to start with another technical thing <laughs> from other Star Wars properties. The ship that Mart and the Iron Squadron are flying is a YT-2400 Corellian freighter. Uh, of course, the Millennium Falcon is a YT-1300. Mm-hmm. And this YT-2400 was first introduced in Shadows of the Empire, which was... It took place in between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi in Legends. So it's no longer canon, but they have brought this ship into canon. And so in that storyline, the YT-2400 was a freighter piloted by Dash Rendar. uh, And you call it the Outrider. And it was, you know, kind of like their stand-in for Han Solo while Han Solo was in Carbonite. I like it. I like it. Yeah, I, I feel like there had already been some moments we talked about of K- Legends canon working its way into, you know, the official Disney canon. So we'd already started to see some of that. And I feel like though th- for this season, bringing Thrawn in was such a huge part of Legends. That kind of really opened the floodgates a bit. And so, yeah, I love that now we're already starting to get more of those things like like that ship. Because cause that's the thing. Kind of like with the planet we talked about two episodes ago, you could just make up a new ship. But bringing in that ship from the old one, the only reason to do that is as a way to be like, hey, folks who love the Legends canon, we know you were sad that we kind of cut it all out, 
we're not ignoring it. We have read it. We do want to honor it. We do want to bring some of it in. And I, I think that's a really nice nod. And it gives us something to point at the TV about. <laughs> yeah. That's always the fun parts. The fun parts. <laughs> Generally, I like plucky teen storylines because it is, I mean, it's it's Mart, who's Sato's nephew, right? And and right. a few other kids who are kind of play acting at being this, this squadron. Like, I mean, I'm sure they've actually seen combat, but they are, they're too big for their britches, right? Yeah. Like they, as Riki alluded to, like they think like a, a freighter is a star destroyer. It's like, right. no, 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 sir. A star destroyer is significantly bigger than that and you cannot defeat it. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. No matter yeah, they, how much gumption you've got. They destroy a light cruiser with this kind, kind of ingenious idea of like flying really close to it and then like releasing their cargo, which is basically mm-hmm. just like, you know, Mel bombs at that point. Uh, but then like, yeah, we blew up a star destroyer. Like, no, 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 no. I like that we're seeing some of Sato's family. And it was, I don't know, I think it was, inter- I like that Sato came back for his nephew too. Because initially, I think, doesn't he descend? Like, uh, like Harris says, like, we'll go get him. And Sato's like, sounds good. And it, yeah. I think it's implied that he's not going to tag along. Even though, like, Sato, right? Like, Sato didn't think his nephew was alive for a while. And was like, oh, hey, must be my brother's kid who's running this Iron Squadron thing. Cool. It's very touching, but it's one of those moments where I feel like our heroes are doing something very cinematic, but actually kind of stupid. Oh, yeah. Because one of the things that's been a theme throughout this is... You know, you can't risk the rebellion. You can't risk the lives of everyone else on these big ships just for, you know, the thing that you are personally attached to. And if I remember correctly, and certainly correct me if I'm wrong here, but what happens is like Sato Sato says, I myself will go, you know, Mm because like I don't want to risk the ship. It's my, you know, this kid's being stupid. We tried to get him out. I still want to rescue him, but we shouldn't risk the fleet. I will go. And then Hera is like, no, no, no. We will go for you because we're, you know, I'm even even better pilot. And then later he brings the whole fleet and the thing he was concerned about that it might be a trap. It 100 percent is, you know, so I was like, it's a beautiful moment. But I was also like, Admiral, like, no, 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 no. That's that's not how we win a war. Yeah. And I also feel like it's like it's strange we did, I wish we would have got to explore a little bit more of March and Sato's relationship because mm-hmm. like Sato says that he tried to reach out to March and like got nothing back and just kind of assumed he was dead and moved on. So clearly like March would have seen his uncle reaching out to him and then purposefully ignored it. Mm-hmm. And then like when he sees his uncle bring a fleet, he's like, oh, you do care about me. Neat. I guess all those messages of you telling me you cared about me didn't count for some reason, right? And it's just... I don't know, kind of washed over a little bit. I wish we got a, mm-hmm. got to see that a little a little more in depth, but it's not the it's not the June and March show. Tragically, I definitely have more thoughts on this. But Ricky, did you want to jump in? So Matthew, you called this a trap earlier, and I don't think it's a trap so much as a test, right? Thrawn mm. shows up at the very end after Sato comes with the fleet, and he makes this speech like a very thrawn speech about like ah like sato like i was wondering what it would take to get you out here now i know Mm. you know something like that so he is again like testing the boundaries of the relationships of the people in the rebellion and Mm -hmm. poking and prodding and see how they react to situations and and he is you know we know thrawn is going to use this 
later on. And I'm not saying right. that as a spoiler, like this is how Thrawn works is he's been testing the rebellion and now he is like figuring out some of their weaknesses, these relationships. Right. Yeah. And I feel like, I don't know, like even, even when Thrawn was setting it up, I don't think it was so much of a test as like, ah, this has happened more like, I know this is what's going to happen. I don't know. I don't disagree with Matthew that it, it was kind of a trap, but I also see what you're saying that it was a test. I think it's kind of like a testy trap. A trap test. But again, he lets them go. Yeah. Like, the point was not to capture them or destroy these ships. No, it's about gaining information, yeah. which is, like, Thrawn is in the information gathering stage right now. I, I guess I didn't see it that way. It may, it may, like, mm. and, uh, may, maybe I'm being influenced by what the the wiki writer the wiki writer wrote, and they could certainly be wrong, but like, they describe it as, you know, our heroes barely managed to escape Thrawn's ambush. I, I certainly thought that Thrawn thought he would, and maybe it was also Constantine was more kind of, and, and we should get talk, get in something about uh, uh, Thrawn and Constantine in this episode. Mm. I think Thrawn was fine with the idea that they would get away because he would still learn a lot, but I think he definitely wanted to capture them if he could. Interesting. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in that big blue head of his. That's fair. Well, so what did you think of, uh, of the little dynamic he has with uh, Constantine? Because we've seen some tension between the two of them up to this point. And here he basically orders Constantine to go get them, not with a Star Destroyer, not with a fleet, <laughs> but just with this one light cruiser. And when Thro when Constantine planes, he responds, oh, certainly someone of your caliber should be able to take care of this with just a freighter, right? Um, with, with just sarcasm dripping from his voice, but in that kind of very genteel, you're not quite sure if you're being insulted way. What, what do you think is going on between the two of them? Well, I think you know you're being insulted, but he's your admiral, so you can't say anything about it. Yeah, that's right? fair too. Yeah, It's like the kind of, he's nagging him basically, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a constant tension we've talked about in the empire between politicians and military. And even though Constantine holds the rank of admiral, he's been described as a politician. Right. And is viewed as having achieved this rank, not through his military strategy, but through politics. Right. So Thrawn, as a man more of military strategy, probably does not enjoy having Admiral Constantine around because <laughs> he views him as incompetent, right? But still has to treat him as somewhat of an equal, as an admiral. Yeah. So he kind of enjoyed putting him in a situation where surely you should be able to defeat them, which he should. But Thrawn knows, you know, that the rebels right. are crafty. And I like what Thrawn, I think this really illustrates the way Thrawn works, because this is kind of a win-win situation for Thrawn in that mm. I think here he also wants to test Constantine. He wants to sort of say, like, look, what happens when I take away, like, I, I think there's this idea that Constantine he sort of is that idea of we have overwhelming force, so I don't have to come up with a strategy. I will mm -hmm. just come in with my big honking ship and my big honking guns and do big honking things. <laughs> and yes, there's a, there's a toxic masculine idea that I'm referencing in that. Thrawn sees like a decision tree here where a number of things could happen. Not a decision tree, but an outcome tree. And like one of those outcomes is that Constantine gets killed. And I think Thrawn is totally okay with that. I think another outcome is that Th that Constantine actually has to use his brain and try to be strategic and maybe he learned something and if i remember it's constantine's idea to place the mine on the ship on the freighter in the hope that you know when everyone else came close he would blow it up and take out all of them so mm -hmm. i, I kind of feel like thrawn actually gets what he wants there and that constantine does do some like interesting battle thinking in a way that he hasn't done up to this point yes i i think i agree with that that thrawn would be okay would have been okay with an outcome where constantine was defeated and died 
uh, because you know unlike Vader or the Emperor at least in canon Thrawn was not the kind of leader who just killed people for failing per se he right. was more concerned about the effort and the ingenuity put into something. And so he did, uh, on one occasion, have someone executed, but it was because they did not carry out their duties in a, in a good way, from his right. point of view. R.I.P. Admiral Nida. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah, and, and I think, like, I, I think Thrawn would also have been okay if, like, Constantine succeeded, too mm-hmm. i don't know if like that i think maybe you were hinting at that matthew but like i i tend to agree with riki's opinion that like thrawn is in this information finding mission and like mm-hmm. was expecting the rebels to be let go like i don't think uh-huh. he's expecting to catch them at this point right. right um and like we've seen him willingly let the rebels go on a few occasions already because he's after the entire fleet. And, like, he gets right. the Admiral to come. He gets the entire fleet to come. But, yeah, I'm, I I don't know. Well, it almost feels like he's, like, toying... Not the entire fleet, right? Is this what you're going to interject yes. and correct me about? He gets the Admiral to show up. And more of the fleet to show up. But, yeah, it feels like he's... I don't know. To win now would be, like, to spoil yeah. to spoil the game too early. I, I think that's true. I, I don't think he thinks Constantine is going to win. But I... Oh, yeah. I, I think... My interpretation, at least, is that Constantine comes up with a pretty good plan of mining mm-hmm. the ship, and that's the kind of thing Thrawn was hoping for. Sure, yeah, totally. That's yeah. what I mean. And yeah, I agree that he he would have been equally mm-hmm. fine if Const- Constantine was killed in battle. It's like, okay, now the annoying guy's gone because yeah. he wasn't ingenuitive enough. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with that. I think overall, this is my least favorite episode of the three. I think there's some good moments, and, and again, it kind of adds some fun things to the story. I don't know if, Sarah, this is kind of what you were saying at the beginning of we talked about this episode. I like a story about a sassy teen who pushes back and maybe makes some mistakes in judgment because they're rash, but but they have internalized logic. And they're, you know, teens are not idiots. I mean, they they can act like it and they can they can let their emotions carry away from themselves like a lot of adults can. But they're still like, I mean, I think there's a degree to which the utter refusal to run away in the face of what is clearly impending doom it broke credibility for me like it got Mm. to me it felt like there was someone in the writer's room who had a rebellious teenager at their home and they were just so (laughs) driven crazy by it that in their mind it's like no this is what teens do they just have no common sense and i just i just don't believe that like i i i could get him pushing back some point but i think at the point at which like his he wants his friends to escape you could have you could have done it that it's more it's not his common sense it's that he has a kind of like he wants to die in battle thing they didn't develop that as much and they mm-hmm. it, it just became annoying kids being dumb for the plot instead of making me believe they were doing that yeah i th- yeah i agree <laughs> and i totally get what you're saying like some guy has a son named mark and it's like okay now mark backspace mart is going yeah. into the, the ship and yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, and it's, I, I would have been so cool if we went and explored Mart's feelings about his dad dying in battle and, like, wanting to emulate that or wanting to prove that, like, he's better in some way or maybe he's angry at his dad for dying, right? Like, I think all of these are really interesting storylines, but we didn't get any of it. We just got cocky teen, which felt a little one-dimensional. I didn't I didn't dislike the episode. Like I think it was still really fun. I wish we would have gotten a little more. Yeah. Well, you say one dimensional. Early on, I believe it's Zeb who comments that it sounds like a ship full of Ezra's over there. Yeah. And they laugh about that. 
Yeah. And that's absolutely right. And that's the problem with this crew is that they are one dimensional and it is kind of all Ezra's and you need to have, you know, a Kanan and a Hera and a Sabina and other dynamics and characters. Yeah. 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 So this could have been, I'm not saying that it is, it, it could have been like in a, a spinoff, right, of this yeah. crew, but it wouldn't have worked as a TV show because the, the dynamic is too similar amongst the characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's funny because as I think about it, I am a little disappointed they didn't do more. And then I think about to not just Clone Wars, but a lot of other TV shows when I'm basically wishing we had more character development from the basically just exist to be rescued by our heroes characters in a 22 minute show. In some ways, I feel like the fact that we expect more is kind of showing how high the bar has been set by the show because they do do that. They often do introduce a character in a throwaway way, two or three episodes before we're going to have the actual meat of their story. I, I, I wish that part had been better, but the fact that I'm even thinking that way to me is just one more sign of how good a show this is. Yeah, I mean, like like all the episodes I'm not completely wowed by in Rebels, they're still great. Like, this is still yeah. a really fun episode to watch, right? Like like you're saying, the, 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 the base is pretty high. Yeah. And like, were this an episode in Clone Wars, I think we'd be talking about how especially early clone wars right talking about how amazing and great it was yeah and we didn't get like five droids for three episodes (laughs) yeah (laughs) there was no not a roger roger to be heard (laughs) well i was thinking of the gascon nonsense but oh yes still no roger rogers and i think we're going to do a quick spoiler section there's not much to talk about spoilers but there's a little bit but any other last comments before we kind of do our quick close in that yeah, so at the end of this episode, when Admiral Sato and Mart are reunited, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on between those characters. Mm-hmm. And I would, I personally, I want to go back and just watch the ending again because it it feels more significant than just like a regular ah, oh, like I'm glad you're safe. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of physical language communication going on between those characters. And at least maybe I'm projecting here, but to me, it felt very Asian, the Mm. way that they interacted. I did not see that, but I'm really glad to hear you point that out, especially given what we kind of talked about before with like the racism and I think very specifically anti-Asian, anti-Japanese racism of the Neomodian. So I I, I love hearing that there's stuff you're seeing there, that that is a much more positive representation. Yeah. So, you know, Sato is a Japanese name and is played by a Hawaiian actor of Japanese descent and uh, I believe it's Kiani Young and there's like I said there's just something interesting going on here where Mart uh, looks to be coded more white so there's probably something going on on that side of the family like where maybe he's half Mm -hmm. and and like similar to me growing up my parents uh, being you know first generation Japanese people Really, we didn't have a lot of like physical contact and affection as a family, right? Like American families are always hugging. I had to teach my <laughs> parents when I come home, you know, from college for Thanksgiving, I want a hug because it's been so long since I've seen you. Because, you know, that's what I've seen represented in media. And that's what I think a family should do. And so so that's what I mean is that there, there seemed to be something going on there. And then there was like a moment where I, one of them embraces the other. And it was like, it felt really much more like a breakthrough moment uh, between family members. I could see that. And I think that could, I could see that tying in well to 
um, and maybe maybe I'm, I'm misunderstanding here, but like to me that would also help understand like why Mart was not responding to Sato. You know why why like the him reaching out and showing concern like just didn't register in some way. Yeah, and I think that would be neat, and I wish we would have seen more of it, right? Or I yeah. had that maybe a little more explicit, because I think there's something really interesting happening there. It's just like we didn't, there's too much other stuff going on that we didn't get to to dive into that. I guess I'm sort of a both minds there, is that I want, I would love more of that, but I also feel like there's always going to be something in an episode that there isn't enough, that, that, that they don't, that there's just a, a one throwaway thing. But the fact that even there... They're taking the time to put that much detail into it, knowing that it's going to go way over a lot of people's heads. I don't know. To, to me, that's, that's writing I'm really impressed by, even though, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it leaves me wanting more of it. And I mean, I do think we have to be open to the idea that Riki might be projecting a teeny tiny bit. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I would have no idea, like, how intentional any of that is, right? Mm-hmm. But I like the fact that they didn't, hit us over the head with stuff like i disagree with sarah that that should have been fleshed out more because mm-hmm. i think when tv shows try to do that with representation that's a very easy way to go wrong mm. sorry i'm I'm saying not necessarily the like asian codedness that you're talking about but the relationship between mart jun and mart's dad slash mm. jun's brother yeah i i still i still would not have wanted too much about them talking about it because that honestly like that's part of the asian american experience is like not talking about it yeah well, with even, your family and it's kind of like like what matthew always says i don't want them to talk about it i want them to show me yeah. right yeah so like if we even if we had like the episode directly after this was just mart's dad and mart and iron squadron stuff that would be yeah. cool please write that episode for me i think i very much get what you're saying though because for me what i what i what makes me think of is the tv show hawkeye where one of the reasons why I loved the character of Echo so much is that she, she's a great sort of study of intersectionality and in that she's coming from – there's like a number of different kinds of representation represented in her character. She's indigenous and, and Latinx and she's also deaf and she has a prosthetic leg. And they write the story in such a way where her being deaf is a very intentional part of the story that a lot of attention is paid to. For having a prosthetic leg, I don't think any character ever mentions it. We notice it, and there's one combat where she uses the prosthetic leg in combat, but no attention is paid to it. And I remember in the podcast I did about that, there were a couple times where I noticed things that no one else would have noticed. And where I feel, I and, and I think this is where I, I get where you're coming from, Riki, like the deafness was an integral part of her relating to the other characters and the storyline that was happening, so it made sense to focus on it. I think if we had focused more on her having lost her leg, it wouldn't have felt the same to me. Because I, I liked that it was, we're not going to make a big deal of it, but we're still going to show you that we're doing it right. Does that make sense? It's like, we're still going to, even though we're not shining a light on it, we know that some of you are going to notice it out of the corner of your eye, so we're still going to take the extra time to do it right. Yeah, that makes sense. We, not, we haven't seen Hawkeye at all, but I mean, I get the, I get what you're, what you're saying. Okay. I, I think it's my favorite Disney Plus show, uh, and that's Ooh. even after watching, because the representation in it, uh, the disability representation in it is the best I think I've ever seen in any show, and it's just, but also I found the story, and it's so compelling. That's a whole other story. Let me just do a quick thing now. Uh, I think it's now about time to go into our spoiler section. For anyone who's going to bow out now, because you haven't seen things that are coming forward, please do. 
Don't want you to get spoiled. You can always come back and listen to the rest of it. Um, but thank you so much for being a part of this. As always, you can go to theethicalpanda.com, and that's where you'll find email, Twitter, Facebook, all the ways to contact us. We spent like 20 minutes, and we also got a Twitter poll out of a great question someone else asked last time. Ask us questions. Leave us comments. Tell us what you think. We'd love to hear it. Uh, theethicalpanda.com. Of course, this podcast is also brought to you by Manscaped. We're not going to talk about it today. We've got so much else to talk about, but they're really great products. I've been using them for a while now. I'm wearing the boxers now. They're incredibly comfortable. If you go to manscaped.com, use the hero code SWUP, uh, the, <laughs> sorry, the promo code <laughs> SWUP, S-W-U-P, for Star Wars Universe Podcast. You get 20% off anything you purchase. So please check that out. And we'll be right back with the spoiler section right after this commercial break. All right, so we're back, and let's go into the spoiler section in three, two, one. Fulcrum is still operating. Mm-hmm. I remember that last time we were talking about, like, okay, has has he fully decided to be Fulcrum, or was he just going to be, like, Fulcrum for that one thing to, like, make him even with Gerizeb? And so I liked it so quickly, we see that Fulcrum is still operating. Yeah, we get, uh, we don't, do we actually hear Fulcrum, or do we just get them talking about information they, that Fulcrum provided. They just say that he provided... I think that's how they know about this thing with the dissidents, is that because Fulcrum is providing him information. Okay. Yeah, and that is that is cool. And I like that... I don't know, because like earlier, before we'd, we'd mentioned, like if you know that Fulcrum is callous, that you can hear it. Similar to like, we knew it was Ahsoka, and like when I heard Fulcrum, I was like, yep, that's Ahsoka. Right. So I, I like that now that they've maybe hinted at callous they're not they're they're giving us some time before we hear fulcrum's voice again to like kind of keep that obfuscated mm-hmm. yeah i definitely have that same reaction i i i just i just thought it was a fun little like okay it's still happening you know mm-hmm. now i think there's another spoiler thing that you wanted to bring up yeah well when we were talking about um the the episode seven imperial super commandos mm-hmm. yeah there's i don't know it just like this sets up so much stuff for the storyline with sabine that we're going to be getting mm-hmm. later and so i i think riki kind of hinted at it that like this episode in isolation isn't super duper amazing but for what it sets up later is like really yeah exciting you're giving me kind of a weird look though no i i agree like the introduction of gar saxon as a character here is really good and setting up the polit you know he mentions the politics on mandalore and yeah. we are going to get a full arc later this season on mandalore mm-hmm. and sabine's parents too and we get to find out like a lot more about mm-hmm. their high standing as members of clan ren or clan Vizla, house ren i don't know i keep getting it mixed up i'm sorry don't at me <laughs> I, I i was doing it too so that's fair but no i, I think you're right i think it's it makes me want to go back and watch the Mandalorian again and watch the Bo- book of Boba Fett episodes that are about Mando because it's, yeah, it's just like every, all these little things, even back to like, you know, episodes about new Concordia and, and, and stuff like that, uh, or mm-hmm. sorry, Concordia and like the, the death watch and all that. And, and now the children of the watch that Mando was a part of. It is so impressive to me when all these pieces fit together so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really exciting. I think to like get the yeah. beginnings of it too. Yeah. Yeah. Good things to come. I also really just loved the simplicity of Gar Saxon's Mandalorian armor because Mm -hmm. it was just like a very simple white with red trim. 
right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then when he was introduced in the comics, in the Maul comics, he his armor actually mirrors Maul's. And I believe we see this in Season 7 of The Clone Wars, where he is wearing Mandalorian armor, but he has painted it red in similar style as Maul's face and has horns yeah. on his helmet. And, and it's just, I think that's so telling of Gar's character, mm-hmm. that he mirrored Maul with his armor now he's mirroring stormtroopers in the Empire yep. mm-hmm. with a simpler white. And when we get to that in Clone Wars Season 7, it's also wonderful because at the same time, Ahsoka's clone troopers have all kind of painted their helmets to look like her. So there's yeah. this wonderful contrast there. So, Well, thank you both so much. It's been great having you on as always. Uh, looking forward to getting as much more Rebels as we can in before uh, Kenobi. We will be doing uh, at least one, probably two episodes every week about Kenobi. We've got at least one Kenobi Primer episode coming up. Thank you so much to both of you for being a part of this. Thank you to all of our listeners, and may the fourth be with you. Yay. Swap, 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 swap. Swap, swap. Live long and prosper. And also with you. And also with you.